You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Managers at the Ivy Bookshop in Rome, Washington, and I am delighted to welcome you to this edition of Writers Live um, with Audrey Claire Farley this evening. We are so delighted to partner with the Pratt for their virtual events. Um, the Writers Live series, I was thinking about it today, it has become such a touchstone for me since the beginning of the pandemic. I can't really imagine life without it now, and I know that to be true for so many other folks. Um, so a big thank you to the Pratt for keeping a sense of community around books alive this whole time. Uh, we feel so lucky to work with you. And up at the Ivy with the weather warming, we're all really reveling in the Ivy's outdoor space with a limited number of socially distant author events, mostly local authors book launches um, and weekly patio sales with discounted books on Saturdays. Um, we're just so excited to be able to gather around books and ideas and writing and authors um, and yeah, tonight is a perfect example of that. I, you're just in for such a huge treat with Audrey Claire Farley. I have a soft spot in my heart for scholars and writers who work at the intersection of science and history and literature. And Audrey Claire Farley's work is incredible. I know we're all going to leave with our minds expanded in lots of new directions. If you're interested in reading more or following up, uh, with Audrey's work after the event. I'll put the link to the Unfit Heiress in the chat box in just a minute. Um, and I, I know you will want to read more. Um, I highly recommend it. And we hope to see you up at the Ivy soon. I'm going to hand it over to Sophia now. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Hannah. Um, good evening, everyone. I am Sophia Nehlawi. I am the Adult Program Associate at the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Um, thank you everyone for joining us for Writers Live, Audrey Claire Farley, The Unfit Heiress, moderated by Carrie Callahan. Uh, before introductions, some virtual logistics for tonight. If you're watching in Zoom, please click the Q&A button on your screen to post any questions. If you're watching on Facebook, please post your questions in the comments. We will be observing both, so we'll get to everyone's questions. We'll make sure everyone is accounted for. Um, and also we will be posting our program survey towards the end of the program, uh, whenever possible, please fill it out. We would love to hear your feedback and it helps us produce more programs for everyone to enjoy. Um, tonight we're thrilled to host Audrey Claire Farley and Carrie Callahan and support our event bookstore partner, the Ivy, Books, the Ivy Bookshop and order your copy directly from them. Um, and yeah, so. Audrey Claire Farley is a writer, book reviewer, and historian of 20th century American fiction and culture. Having earned a PhD in English from the University of Maryland College Park in 2017, she occasionally lectures in history and literature at local universities. Her essay on Anne Cooper Hewitt, published in July 2019 in Narratively, was the publication's second most read story of the year. Her writing on the eugenics movement and other topics has appeared in the Atlantic, The Washington Post, The New Republic, Public Books, Lady Science, Long Reads, and Marginalia Review of Books, where she's a contributing editor. She lives in Hanover, Pennsylvania. Carrie Callahan is the author of the historical novels, A Light of Her Own and Salt the Snow. 
Her short stories have been published in multiple literary journals, and she is a senior editor with the Washington Independent Review of Books. She lives in Maryland with her family and three ridiculous cats. Personally, I'm very intrigued to hear about an infamous case on eugenics and the motives behind medical treatments and, um, and medicine, modern and past medicine on women. So I'm super excited for this, but I'm gonna stop talking. Um, now, everyone, please give a warm virtual welcome to Audrey Claire Farley and Carrie Callahan. Thank you so much, Sophia. Uh, thank you, Hannah from Ivy Bookshop. Uh, independent bookstores really are the lifeblood of our literary community. And I'm so glad to see you partnering with the library, which is sort of the other leg of the stool there. And thank you to Alyssa for being our interpreter tonight. Uh, it's such a pleasure to have that, that extra bonus. Um, and then finally, Audrey, thank you for writing this amazing book. This was so much fun to read. Such a wonderful story and so interesting. So I'm really excited to get into it tonight. Um, and I like starting at the beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you open the book with this incredibly vivid, dramatic scene. Tell us about what's going on there when January 1936 and Anne is facing the flashbulbs. Mm -hmm. So it begins in San Francisco and Anne Cooper Hewitt, who at this point is 22, comes forward and says uh, with an attorney that she has filed a civil suit against her mother for having her sterilized without her knowledge. The way Anne told it, she, the two of them had been out to lunch one day and she's suddenly stuck with, with stomach pains and she's taken to the city in San Francisco and there's a doctor waiting for her. And he just says, well, Anne, I understand you have appendicitis. And he takes her to another room where there's a woman who asks her civics questions. When was the Battle of Hastings fought? What's the longest river in the United States? And she doesn't know what's going on. Uh, and four days later, she goes to have her appendix removed. And um, unbeknownst to her, she also has her fallopian tubes removed. So she's filing this lawsuit against her mother for half a million dollars. And uh, she says that her mother did this to deprive her of the family money. Uh, her father had a stipulation in his will that said that two thirds of his estate went to Anne and one third to her mother, Marion, but that Anne's share reverted back to her mother if she died childless. So that Anne alleged was the reason why her mother had the surgery. And that would be quite a lot of money these days, right? Half a million dollars. Yes. Well, the half a million is what she was suing for, but the right. money from the estate was much bigger. Um, her father, when he died in um, 1921, he left $4 million, which would be about $59 million today. So you could see the stakes were quite high uh, financially, to say nothing of morally. Yes. Um, Anne had such an interesting childhood. How was it that she ended up, um, well, first having that lunch with her mother and then on the operating table? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so she was born a love child. Her mother was, um, or her father was married to somebody else at the time that he and her mother got together. And so for the first three years of her life, she mostly lived with her mother in Paris. And her father, who was an American and a very established inventor, would come to the city and visit. 
And her mother really resented her from the days that she was born. Anne was a very needy child. She was born prematurely. She had a lot of bronchial trouble. She was colicky. She had to wear a truss as a kid. And so her mom um, thought that she was unsightly and that she was feeble-minded. And so when Anne's father died, when she was only seven, the mother began to put her in asylums and institutions, mostly in Europe. And then they later moved to the United States. So her mother was very emotionally abusive. Occasionally she would strike her and she grew up you know, thinking that she was an ugly duckling and being told, you know, that she was feeble-minded, that she wasn't intelligent. Uh, and then later as she got older, that she was oversexed. Yeah, that, that notion of being oversexed, I think that's maybe a, a concept that's a little bit foreign to contemporary readers. Um, but yet it seems like it was something that people were talking about quite a lot in the teens and 20s and 30s. Um, can you explain a little bit more about how that how that affected Anne's childhood and how it was reflected upon her? Sure. So in the early 20th century, a lot of American women were beginning to break free from Victorian morality. So in the Victorian era or the 1800s, um, culture had this idea that um, sex was really supposed to be reserved for reproduction because Victorian doctors believed if you had too much of it, then you might go insane. Uh, they had this you know, wild idea that the body really only had like limited energies. And so if you expelled too much, then you might go crazy was the idea. And so women, Victorian women are notoriously prudish um, and that connotation still exists today. You know, if you say someone's Victorian, they're prudish. And in the early 20th century, women were beginning to um, think that maybe they wanted to enjoy sex for reasons other than reproduction. Maybe they wanted to have a role in public life or go bicycling around town without a companion. And um, so there was a lot of nervousness about um, this revolution in morals that was taking place. And a lot of medical authorities developed the term oversexed to um, label women that they perceived to be, you know, too interested in sex and not like the, the kind of Victorian woman that they wanted them to be. Wow. Um, one of the, the sort of mind-blowing moments, there are so many mind-blowing moments in this book, Audrey, um, but you talk about flappers as being sort of almost a conservative symbol rather than the, um, the, the avant-garde, um, sexually liberated symbol that we think of them today. Can you talk just a little bit about that, sort of how that fits into the, the um, timeline of sexuality and morality that you just laid out? Sure. Well, you know, opinion was divided about flappers. A lot of people did think of them as socially dangerous figures because they were out dancing and listening to jazz and drinking and all of these things. But at the same time, um, the flapper was rehabilitated into a more um, uh, socially conservative figure insofar as she was going to dance halls to meet a husband and eventually become a mother. So with the, the flapper, there was kind of a domestication of that more dangerous female figure. It's like, okay, well, maybe she's 
you know, more um, frisky than we want women to be. But if it's with the goal of marriage and babies, then we can live with that. That was pretty much the only avenue, right? For, or at least not the only avenue, but it was a, a common and one of the only socially acceptable avenues for female ambition at the time. Um, right. Right. And by marriage. Yeah. And so, yeah, like the pursuit of a husband. And I think you get that a lot in Marion's story, Anne's mother. I love how you actually take a step back from Anne's story and give us the history of Marion. It makes the the whole dynamic so much more rich and honest. Honest. Um, so tell us a little bit about Marion and, and what her deal was. Mm-hmm. So when Anne filed her lawsuit, a lot of the public remembered Marion from days past. So she had been uh, what was called a, a gold digger and a social climber, which are, of course, terms that are only applied to women, right? Because men had other opportunities to uh, to move up in society. But women had marriage. And so um, Anne's mother treated marriage like a business venture. She was kind of constantly scheming. And when she had, you know, been with a spouse for so long and thought, okay, you know, it's time to move on, you know, she treated it like a career decision. Uh, and so she was just constantly marrying up. And that really fascinated people. Um, and, you know, it, it, so she had a reputation by the time the case came along. And she was stunning, right? A very mm-hmm. beautiful woman. Yes. Um, she was definitely perceived to be, you know, very attractive. Yeah. The reason I mentioned that is because in the book, you point out how it was sort of a binary function that women could either be beautiful or intelligent, which is, you know, still a legacy that people are dealing with today. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, again, one of the, the complexities of your book that I appreciated was that you point out that even though she was a gold digger and a climber, Marion was probably pretty smart, right? Mm-hmm. And how did you deduce that? Well, she was known as the greatest woman gambler in the world. And uh, she uh, was skilled at card tables and rolling dice and all of this. And so that suggested to me that she was intelligent, but also just the simple fact that, you know, she was so conniving with her spouses and that she was just constantly scheming. I just got the impression that she was very intelligent and also that she was able to manipulate people, which I think requires a level of intelligence. And so then that brings us to one of her husbands. What is he? Number two, uh, Anne's father, number number three. Yeah, uh, Peter, uh, tell us a little bit about Peter and how he plays into this drama. Yes. So Peter was a legendary inventor. He was famous for inventing the mercury vapor lamp, which was popularly used in factories. But even prior to that creation, he was well known because he was the grandson of Peter Cooper, which uh, Peter Cooper was considered one of the patriarchs of New York City. And so he grew up, um, Peter, Anne's father, with um, the families like the Rockefellers, the Vanderbilts, the Carnegies, the Morgans, uh, in this truly upper echelon society of New York. Wow. I wonder if um, his name doesn't come to mind so easily because Cooper is actually a relatively common name. But when you think about it, the name Cooper is is plastered all over New York. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but we just might not associate it with that Peter Cooper. So you've got this, this trio of famous or infamous people um, who they all come to head in this really, this very interesting case, which actually becomes two cases, right? Mm -hmm. um, how did you come to this story? Uh, you know, it seems like it was very famous in the 1930s, but it had really fallen into obscurity mm -hmm. after that. How did you find it and how did you decide that this was the story you wanted to tell? Mm -hmm. Well, I actually came to it because I had been researching diabetes and the history of insulin. Um, so my daughter, a few years back, was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And I was just, you know, trying to understand the history of the disease and I kept coming across mention of eugenics because eugenics had kind of reached its high watermark at the time that insulin was discovered, which is in 1922. Um, and I was reading that a lot of diabetics were um, kind of off the hook with eugenics policies. They weren't targeted the way that epileptics were, the way that people who were feeble-minded were. And that was a really curious question to me. I thought, you know, well, why would some disabilities be perceived to be more dangerous than others? And that really set me down a rabbit hole because I realized I didn't know anything about eugenics. And so it was just, you know, reading all kinds of books about eugenics. And I came to uh, Anne's story, which just totally riveted me. And it also provided an answer to that question about, you know, why some disabilities were perceived to be more dangerous than others. And I think what it is, is that um, feeble-minded people were perceived more likely to cross the color line. In other words, to, to mix with other races. Um, and that's actually something that Anne's mother makes much of in the book. She uh, in defending herself, she says, well, Anne, you know, flirted with working class men, including Negroes, uh, and she knew what she was doing. Um, and so I, I really um, was able to see that eugenics wasn't about disability per se. It was a lot about whiteness and preserving uh, white supremacy and the purity of the white bloodline and disability played into that. And that's definitely one of the huge takeaways of the book is how eugenics wasn't just a frivolous side project for some part of society, but that it was actually really deeply woven into patriarchy and white supremacy and maintaining a certain set of power structures um, that I think, you know, today we can tend to think of eugenics as being just something that some wacky Nazis did. But what you show is, is how much deeply, how much more deeply woven into society it was. Um, and one of the things I particularly enjoyed was your, it's, it's short, but it's really interesting, your sort of history of charity mm -hmm. and how that's woven into eugenics. Can you talk a little bit more about that now? Yeah. So um, eugenics really appealed to the upper classes because they thought that it was their job to use their philanthropy to shape society. And this idea was really popularized by Andrew Carnegie, who wrote a famous essay called The Gospel of Wealth. And it was written for his peers. And he said, you know, we shouldn't die with all our money. It's our job to use our money while we're alive to benefit society. And that essay really shaped attitudes about philanthropy among those really 
well-bred families, the Rockefellers, the Vanderbilts and whatnot. And so these upper classes um, began to look at poverty, um, which I argue in the book, they had a role in creating, but uh, they began to look at poverty as um, an inherited thing, just like blue eyes or brown hair. You inherited the traits that made you a poor person. You inherited the traits that made you a criminal. And so they believed that they could eradicate these social ills by preventing uh, weaker people from reproducing. Which I think in the context of Anne's and Marion's story is almost ironic because Marion's background was actually quite humble, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, she was born in the backwoods of Alabama, but it's something that she managed to hide from people for most of her life. Um, part of the way that she was able to get away with that is because she didn't associate with her family. Uh, she was constantly shape-shifting um, and her family had grown up in California, but she moved over to the East Coast with her first marriage and spent most of her life there. Um, and so she just lied about her origins. She said that she was a Southern belle and, uh, and a lot of people, but not all believed that. In the course of your research, did you ever come across any indications that her family had seen her on the national stage and tried to reach out? No, um, huh. that was just kind of one of the gaps in the research, but something that really, really fascinated me. Maybe they were so backwoods, they weren't getting yeah. newspapers. Yeah. Uh, and they had no idea how, uh, how far she had flown. Yeah, um, I think she did have contact with her mother um, later in life, but it was just a very passing mention in the newspapers. I don't think that they had much of a meaningful relationship. Did Marion leave behind any personal papers? No, no, she didn't. That's too bad. It would have been really interesting to read her letters, wouldn't it? Yes. Yeah. Did you get any personal papers for any of the subjects? I mean, you're blessed with having a rich newspaper record for a lot of it. Um, were, was there any personal correspondence too? The personal correspondence was between the eugenicists who make an appearance in the later part of the book. So the people who became involved in Anne's trial. Um, and while I didn't have any personal correspondence of Anne, she had written her um, story and her version of events for the San Francisco Examiner, which was the paper in the home city where the trial was taking place. And it was, um, it was a serialized story. And so there were four pretty extensive um, pages of her telling her story where she um, provided a lot of background about her childhood and her relationship with her mother. And so a lot of the scenes in the book come from that testimony of Anne's. And those scenes are, are so much fun and, and so gripping to read. It's also very chilling to read the correspondence and the writing of those eugenicists um, because at least from my perspective, you know, it seems like what they're doing was so obviously evil and yet they were so very convinced of their own self-righteousness, which, you know, as we know is nothing new or old in human history. Mm -hmm. um, but so when you're you're writing these people, how what was your own emotional relationship to them? How did you feel about these eugenicists? Mm -hmm. I mean, 
I just like shock and awe at just how um, conniving and dishonest and ruthless they were. Um, several of them that are mentioned in the book were actually corresponding with uh, leaders of the Third Reich. <laughs> and so they were, you know, saying, hey, we have these sterilization programs in the United States. Here's what you could do with them. And, uh, and Nazi leaders did thank them for a lot of their work and for pr essentially providing the blueprints uh, for a lot of the programs that the Nazis would then execute. Which is a very chilling legacy that I think a lot of Americans um, would be very uncomfortable with to learn how much responsibility our history has for informing what happens in Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. um, another one of the, uh, the issues that comes up for Anne is the question of intelligence. And mm -hmm. as you were saying at the beginning, they gave her this civics test that purported to be an intelligence test um, which I don't think is how we would do it today. <laughs> so um, so tell me a little bit more about how people thought about intelligence back then and what impact that had on Anne. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, an intelligence test was d used to uh, diagnose and weed out people that were perceived to be feeble-minded. Now, um, with doctors, they always had a foregone conclusion, right? You know, they picked a woman up off the streets because she was poor, because they thought she was promiscuous, or um, she had some other socially undesirable trait, and they would administer these exams, which, um, as I said earlier, were basically civics tests. So it was questions about American history. Um, so obviously, anyone who didn't have a certain education was not going to uh, pass the test. Um, and that was the case famously with Carrie Buck, who's mentioned in the book. Um, her case was significant because it went all the way to the Supreme Court in 1927. And uh, the Supreme Court ruled that the state of Virginia did have the right to forcibly sterilize her because she was uh, supposedly feeble-minded. So then these, um, these tests would then be used to categorize people as um, an idiot, a moron, or an imbecile. I forget exactly which is which, but Anne was classified as a moron, which was one of the higher uh, intelligence categories. And morons were perceived to be the most dangerous because they seemed likely to um, have a chance at passing as a normal person. Um, so this, I, this whole concept of passing uh, looms large in uh, authorities' imaginations. So racial passing is dangerous, but so is um, this intellectual passing. If you're a moron and you have these bad traits, but you're just intelligent enough to maybe trick somebody into marrying you, then you can pass down your defective genes and all of that. It's a very defensive view of society, isn't it? Um, mm -hmm. And protecting something, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, trying to keep people from passing as something privileged. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. And I think that that also connects to the anxiety about women like Marion. The reason we call gold diggers that um, is because we don't like people having social mobility, right? People are supposed to stay in their place. 
Exactly. It is so interesting how when you start to think about these terms, they mm -hmm. can reveal what society's anxieties are, and then those in turn reveal what our power structures are, mm -hmm. um, which can be quite chilling when you get down to it. Um, speaking of, of women, you mentioned this earlier as well, the question of sex's purpose, you know, whether sex is for pleasure or sex is for pro procreation. Can you explain a little bit more about how that comes into play in the book and in the yeah. history? Yeah. So after Anne filed her civil suit, the San Francisco prosecutor quickly um, piggybacked it with criminal charges. And the criminal charge that he filed uh, against Anne and the two doctors um, and also the psychologist who administered the test, although she was dropped from the case, was mayhem. And mayhem was a very unusual criminal charge, but it involved the disfigurement of a person. And so uh, the question of sex's purpose played into whether or not a mayhem charge could indeed apply. So... Um, the question was, what is the purpose of the reproductive organs? Was it to reproduce, in which case mayhem applied, right? Because they had taken away Anne's right to reproduce. Or was sex for pleasure? And so the eugenicists in the book kind of were cornered into arguing that uh, sex was for pleasure, which was a liberal argument. Uh, for people to be making at a time when they were also saying Anne was oversexed. I know the, uh, the ironies of it are so rich. Um, and I think it's interesting that they felt so obliged to come up with sort of a centralized answer to that question. Mm -hmm. And I think today a lot of us would say, why do you, why do you even have to have an answer to that? Right. Yeah. I mean, they just, um, you know, they were willing to to take whatever intellectual leap was necessary to defend, you know, their, this pet project. <laughs> um, which is probably instructive for anyone who finds themselves really wedded to one particular idea. Um, I mean, not to suggest that any of your readers are future eugenicists, right. but um, I just personally, I think everybody can benefit from a little bit of intellectual humility to make sure we're not going down that path. Mm -hmm. um, which, so another one of the things I loved about the book is how, you know, you're dealing with these really disgusting people in a lot of ways. And yet um, the authorial tone is actually pretty light. I mean, it's clear sort of what you think of them reading between the lines, but you never go out and come out and really say it. Uh, which allows the reader to draw their own conclusions. I think it's a great strategy. Um, but in this sort of, of cast of, of characters, some of whom are, are less difficult than others, um, who is your favorite? Who, you know, if you could summon any one of them back to life, who would you want to have dinner with? Probably Anne, although I had the most fun writing about Marion, her mother. Um, and it was the chapters on Marion that I put forth in my book proposal because I just thought she was um, the most engaging and the one that reader can just totally immerse themselves in her story. But, you know, my heart went out to Anne. Um, I was really drawn to how complicated she was as a character. Um, I won't give anything away, but, you know, just to say that, you know, later on in life, you know, she did things um, that weren't, um, you know, 
the best to other women. Um, and so, uh, you know, she wasn't perfect and I didn't want to sugarcoat her character, but really show her who she was in all her humanity, all her flaws and everything. Yeah. And you did a fantastic job because she is so complex. She's, she wants to be kind. And yet you have the feeling that she is so injured that her heart's a little bit stunted. Um, or at least that was sort of my takeaway, which, you know, then of course makes your heart ache um, for someone who's been through that. Um, and Peter, it seemed like you enjoyed him. Is that right? I did. Yeah. Um, I, I like, I'm intrigued by scientists. Um, and uh, it interested me how he was kind of put on a pedestal in society. And, um, and it wasn't really until his affair with Marion, which the newspapers thought to be so dangerous to society, it was going to rock the foundations, um, that he was knocked off that pedestal. Uh, and I was also just really moved by his love for Anne. Um, and uh, I tried to show in the book um, how much he just adored her. And uh, even though their time together was really brief, um, those memories really stuck with Anne. Um, and she was kind of spent her whole life chasing that love, you know, trying to find it in other men, trying to find that love that, that she remembered her father giving to her. That's a very common human story too, right? Um, people not getting what they want out of their parents and yet not capable of or not knowing how to look beyond it, which again, just in the title, you call Anne tragic. And I think that's a big part of her tragedy. Mm -hmm. She almost never really had a chance. Mm -hmm. um, but she has a couple of um, champions in the book, at least sort of, right? Um, I'm thinking of the, the, I guess he was a state prosecutor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how but, does he come into this story? Mm -hmm. um, so he, uh, he chose to file criminal charges to go along with um, Anne's civil suit. And it was actually the criminal case that ended up going to trial. Nothing much happened with Anne's half a million dollar suit against her mother. Um, so I won't say what happens with the trial, but um, it was his work, the, the prosecutor of San Francisco, that um, brought the two doctors to trial. Uh, and that was the moment when um, the, the eugenicists had their chance to become involved in the case and to try to shape it in a way that was going to benefit the movement. Um, and, um, and what was so important was that eugenics was kind of on life support. Um, by the time the case came along. And so this case was really, really uh, critical for them. Yeah, and I think that's an important point um, because, I mean, you honestly, you could just read this story as a dramatic, interesting human interest story of things that happened to people, you know, almost 90 years ago. But actually, it's it's got so much historical resonance um, in ways that I think we, we don't appreciate. Um, I want to just mention to the audience and anyone listening, we're going to turn to audience questions in just a few minutes. So please um, pop them in the Q&A or um, in all of the, the ways that Sophia had mentioned before. We look forward to hearing from you. Um, but so Audrey, getting back to the idea of, you know, the, the resonance and the import of this case, um, why do you think people 
today, again, almost 90 years later, ought to be interested in what happened uh, to Anne in 1936 without giving too much away because it is so much fun. This is like a legal thriller and a science mystery altogether. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because tragically, forced sterilizations are still happening. Um, Just last year, we saw that a whistleblower came forward in Georgia and reported that women had been um, sterilized without consent in an ICE facility there. And I think that the figure is now up to 35 women who are reporting it. Um, And a lot of experts say, you know, if it's happening in one facility, it's likely happening in others. Um, There's also uh, sterilization abuse that's happening in prisons. A lot of um, incarcerated women Um, Just a few years ago in California, the state there did an audit of prisons and found that indeed a lot of women had been sterilized um, without their knowledge or under conditions of dubious consent, which could mean um, that they had been approached when they were under the influence of an epidural or when they're already in the throes of contractions, you know, you can't go to a woman then and, and ask then if she wants to be sterilized. Um, and so that's still happening. Um, but also, you know, we still think about certain women being fit for motherhood and others not. Um, and so I just think a lot of the, um, a lot of the concepts of eugenics are still with us. Can you talk a little bit more about that idea of certain women being fit for motherhood or not? I think that's really interesting. It comes up in the book. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I try to trace in the book is how the concept of fitness changed, Uh, because that's the really thing, interesting thing about eugenics. It doesn't go away. It just shape shifts. And in the beginning, fitness had a lot to do with a woman's perceived genetic defects. So um, people were thought to um, have an inherited bad traits, and that included if you were poor or criminal, it had to do with your family tree, you know, you just inherited these defective genes. And over time, um, that hereditarian aspect of it kind of fell away, and we began to think of fitness as having to do with one's environment Um, And so with this shift from heredity to environment, um, we would look upon a woman who is poor and had multiple children and who is on welfare and say, well, she's unfit for motherhood. Um, And so it's in those ways that we still think of certain people as being um, irresponsible breeders and and that sort of thing. You mentioned in there, I think, Zero Population Growth, the NGO, which is a group that I grew up hearing about in my house. And so sort of seeing that on the page and having the shock realizing that that too is a eugenicist approach to uh, to humanity. Um, it, it made the book resonate, you know, one of the many things that made the book resonate in terms of how important this is still to how we think about uh, humanity, really, because it gets very deeply into who is allowed to have agency and who's allowed to be. Um, we have an audience question. Uh, someone wants to know about Anne's legal team. What kind of legal team, defense team is how they put it. Um, what kind of attorneys did she have? Mm-hmm. 
Um, she had, well, she only had an attorney for her civil suit, and that's the one that didn't really go to court. Um, so that was actually an attorney that her mother had appointed for her when she and her mother were still living together. And she said, I need you to look after Anne's financial affairs. And when Anne figured out what had happened to her and um, left her apartment on her 21st birthday or soon after when she had achieved majority, uh, she went to this man and um, he took on her case. And so I, you know, I didn't get the idea that he had terrible intentions. I don't think he was in it just for the publicity. I think he was rightly horrified by what Anne had said her mother had done. So she had him in her corner. But with the criminal case, um, that involved the prosecutor who wasn't exactly representing Anne so much as, you know, going after the doctors. Um, and so, um, you know, she didn't have uh, representation for that part. And I still just love the notion of calling it mayhem. You know, when you say mayhem today, it has nothing to do with the criminal charges that were brought in the 1930s. I'd love to see an etymology history of the evolution of that term. Mm -hmm. um, there's another question here. Someone asks about the creative nonfiction style that you employed, which makes the book really vivid um, and, and uses you know, a little bit of imagination. Um, what made you choose to use that style? And then what was the editing process like with a book that kind of straddles that nonfiction, uh, creative fiction, perhaps line? Mm -hmm. Well, the book didn't start off that way. Um, it initially read like a dissertation. So it was very academic. And my editor was like, no, this, you know, you got to cut this. It's not appropriate to your audience. And so um, I trimmed a lot of the heavy analysis and what was left was much better, but there were still certain questions that weren't answered. Like, you know, why did the characters do certain things? Um, and it just didn't have, um, the narrative didn't make the reader really sympathize with Anne or get a feel for the kind of, uh, exchanges that she would have with her mother. And so I chose to take the liberty of um, crafting dialogue and um, a few scene details to really just bring them to life. Um, and so often what I would do is I would take uh, a detail that Anne had given, say, in her story for the San Francisco Examiner. And maybe she said, oh, my mother and I fought about this. And I would just sort of bring that to life, you know, um, which, you know, of course, you know, I took some liberties there, but I think that it really made the story um, much more emotionally charged for people. Yeah, absolutely. I can vouch for that. Um, and, you know, certainly as a novelist myself, I appreciate the power inherent in that kind of, um, it's almost like a summoning of spirits from the past. Uh, we've got another question. Um, so this might be a follow-up. Um, since you went through such levels of trimming and creative imaginings while bringing this to life, is there anything that you left on the cutting room floor that you, um, that you miss or that you want to share with us? That's a really good question. Um, 
I had a lot of background about Peter's child, which I was sad to see go. Um, but it was just too much for the narrative. Um, Peter's story comes uh, right before the trial. And it was just at a moment where um, momentum wise, we couldn't really afford to have this entirely long backstory. So I had to cut a lot of that. Um, and I was just sad because I was so interested by him. He had such a fascinating life and childhood. Um, so that's probably what I would say. And that reminds me, I wanted to ask if you can explain for folks what a mercury vapor lamp is. Because uh, when you, you know, you mentioned that in the beginning, I was like, I have no idea what that is. And then you explain it. And it's like, oh, wow, that actually probably had a huge impact on society. Uh-huh. Um, gosh, now I got to remember. Um, I think it was just like a very pressurized lamp that used mercury. The problem with the lamp, though, is that it like cast off this bad hue. And so um, it would make people like have a kind of deathly complexion. And so uh, I write in the book that it was never going to work in homes because it made people look dead. You know, you don't want to look at the person across the room and think, oh my gosh, they look like a corpse, but it worked for factories. Um, and, uh, and he made a lot of money for, from it. Yeah. And it, um, I guess it, it produced less heat, right? Which made oh, it more yeah. efficient for industrial use. Um, and you remember better than I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know how it is when uh, people ask me things about my books. I've even forgotten entire characters and been talking to book club groups, like kind well. of had to fake it. Like, oh, I don't remember that person, but I'm glad you do. <laughs> Um, someone else is interested in your interest in the the revolution and evolution of morals. Uh, in Victorian society. And if that stemmed from the literature of the area, you know, or, or was that an out, offshoot of your diabetes research? Um, and, you know, the, the questioner is remembering um, female writers who were institutionalized at the time, works like the yellow wallpaper, mm -hmm. and things like that. I would say it was an offshoot of the eugenics research. Um, you know, honestly, I don't remember being that interested in Victorians, even when I was studying American literature, believe it or not. Um, but with this book, I became interested very quickly. And I came to see how um, these concepts of sex were really playing into the fears that people had about the future of the race. Um, so uh, the idea that eugenicists had was um, that um, women like Anne, who were oversexed, were, um, as I said earlier, likely to cross the color line. So um, someone like Anne might mix with um, a non-white person, and that was dangerous for society. And so I really got um, this idea that um, sexual ethics were very closely linked to race, um, which is something that's actually observable at other moments in our history. If you think about um, after the Civil War, during the Reconstruction era, that was when people um, constructed the Southern white woman, this pure maiden that needed to be protected. And the reason that they put white women on a pedestal is because they wanted to emphasize um, how dangerous black men were, right? They're so barbaric, they're animal-like, they're gonna 
pollute these angels of ours. Um, and so it was a racial anxiety that was being articulated as a sexual anxiety. So that really interested me. Yeah, uh, I can see why. And obviously those are legacies that we are still grappling with today. Mm -hmm. Um, gosh, so many good questions. Uh, someone says, you mentioned enjoying writing the perspective of Marion and focusing on her background and what she was like as a creation of the time period and culture. Would you be interested in writing a full book about her or is there anything um, anything left of hers to be excavated? Um, or maybe the, the questioner is wondering, what about other mother-daughter dynamic, mother mm -hmm. dynamics in history? Is that something that appeals to you? That is such a good question. Um, so in terms of Marion, she was so interesting that I like got everything on the page that I could find about her just about, um, I was just so fascinated. So I don't think there's much of her left, but, um, I am very interested in mother daughter relationships. And, um, it turns out that the manuscript I just finished working on and the one that I'm thinking about working on all have at their center, mother daughter relationships. And that wasn't something intentional. Oh, wow. Intentional. So whoever asked that, you pinpointed my hang up. <laughs> Dialed right into your brain, huh? Exactly. <laughs> um, someone asked about one of my favorite relationship dynamics, which is friendship. Did you find any female friends that Anne might have had to confide in or, or lean on? Mm -hmm. um, you know, sadly, uh, she didn't have a lot of close friends and often she would have paid companions, which is kind of sad, even though it was common for women back then to, you know, pay somebody to be your friend. Um, and a lot of those relationships didn't last long because her paid companions couldn't stand um, the constant press and the scrutiny that went along with being associated with Anne Cooper Hewitt. Um, so she did find companionship in her marriages, um, but I don't think that she ever had that really close bosom friendship with anyone. And what about that press coverage? I mean, it's obvious that there's a lot of historical record that we get out of the press coverage, so it's a boon to us, but it sounds like it must have been pretty oppressive at the time. Is that an accurate guess? Of Anne? Or yes, of Anne, of Marion, of Peter, of all of them. Yeah, um, yes. And I relied extensively on the tabloids because um, they reported the most details about the women's lives, but also um, tabloids really lay bare our cultural anxieties. You know, we can see this with coverage of Meghan Markle. Um, and so by going to them as, as my source, I was just able to see more vividly these social dynamics, these fears um, that were gripping the public at the time. Yeah, wonderful. Would you be willing to share with us what this completed manuscript is about? Yes, I would love to. Yeah. Um, so it's about the Hall Mills murders, which where it was a double murder in 1922. It involved uh, an Episcopal priest and a singer in his choir with whom he was having an affair. And the case really, um, it, it was sensational at the time. And it was attended by um, people like Billy Sunday, who was a famous evangelist of the day. 
And the reason why it gripped people is because it really broke open a lot of the same debates that I talk about in this book um, between um, uh, the old woman, the Victorian woman, and the new woman who was more sexual, between those who felt like marriage as an institution was eroding and those who believed that maybe we should liberalize divorce, maybe we should give people the opportunity to get out of a failed marriage. And so it was really just the same um, question between um, conservative and liberal norms. Um, and so that's what that's at. Did you mention that murder in the book? I did. Yes. Okay. Yeah, you're a very good reader. <laughs> and actually, well, there was such a stunning picture. Yeah. I mean, tell them about the body. I was like, oh my God. Oh, yeah. So when they had been, um, you're a really good reader, by the way. <laughs> um, when they had been discovered, they were laying under an apple tree, which is richly significant. And uh, there were torn bits of their love lighters that were sprinkled all around them. And somebody had positioned them as if they were embracing. So whoever did this was clearly trying to make a point, make a statement. And, um, and there was a, a character connection. Anne's, um, one of her stepfathers that her mother married, his father tried the case, the Hall Mills case. So, well, that's a nice bridge for you. Yeah. <laughs> Um, all right, we're going to have one last question, and then I think um, Sophia is going to pull us off the stage, unfortunately. Uh, so this is about research. I love uh, talking and hearing people talk about research. Someone wants to know, when you dig into the tabloids, where exactly are you doing this? Is this libraries or museums or digital? How do you find these? Yeah, that's a really good question. I have a newspapers.com account, and uh, it's about $75 for six months. And it's just this archive of all kinds of old newspapers. So you can search for anything and you'll get thousands of hits. Uh, so it's a really um, easy way to do research without having to travel. I really recommend it to people. Which is what uh, any writer needs right now. Yes. Honestly, I wish I'd known about that when I was writing my most recent book because um, I used some newspapers, but uh, didn't realize you could get all of them for not that much money. That's great. So any researchers out there, newspapers.com, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Awesome. All right. Um, well, thank you so much. Thank you, Carrie. That was really wonderful. I appreciate it. It was really amazing listening to you both talk tonight, especially on such very intense, very heavy, but very important history that still kind of trickles down into how we live our lives today, especially as women or women identifying individuals um, and how all these things are all interconnected. Um, thank you, Audrey, and thank you, Carrie, for joining us tonight. Um, thank you uh, to the Ivy Bookstore for partnering with us. And um, thank you to our wonderful audience for um, virtually joining us to listen about American history and um, eugenics and all those light fluffy topics we like to talk about at the dinner table but um are just as important to talk about um we'd love to hear uh your thoughts about our programming so if you haven't already please fill out the survey that we posted in the chat when you get a chance this evening and um with that we're going to sign off for tonight so again thank you everyone 
and uh, stay safe out there. Wash your hands, wear your mask. Don't touch anything you're not supposed to. Um, and good night, everyone. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.